0: If you're meek and timid or a true introvert, you're going to struggle being a good compliance officer. And many of them are very strong personalities, male and female, which I love. But it is, you've got to be persistent and you've got to be consistent as well.
1: Global companies face unprecedented risks and challenges in today's economy. To mitigate these legal and economic risks, companies are rapidly embracing and elevating the importance of robust ethics and compliance programs to promote positive corporate citizenship. On Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, you'll hear from industry leaders and insiders about how to create effective ethics and compliance programs that will mitigate risks and maximize financial performance. Here's your host, Michael Volkov. Well, hello, everybody. I'm really happy to have one of my longtime friends and professional colleagues in the compliance profession. We go way back, unfortunately. I still had gray hair even back then, but Bobby Butler is here, and I'm sure many of you in the compliance profession know Bobby. He's got a great reputation. He comes out of uh, Houston, and I'm starting sort of a series to talk about the compliance profession, but also where we are in compliance. And I couldn't think of a better person to start with than Bobby Butler. He was one of the first people I met in the profession. Through the years, I've learned a lot from him. He's worked at a number of companies. So Bobby, welcome and thank you so much for making yourself available.
0: Thank you, Mike. I appreciate the opportunity and appreciate you and the friendship that you've given me over the years and look forward to this conversation. So Bobby... In
1: the beginning of when I first started to work, I came to Houston. I met you and some other folks, but I found within Houston was an incredible network and experience of compliance people. And you've worked at a number of companies across a number of industries, many of whom had spent some time at Baker Hughes with Jay Martin. And before we started, you mentioned that there were sort of two deans of compliance in Houston. Give us a little bit more about your own background. You don't have to go through each company, but sort of your experience in the Houston area and what's unique about it in compliance. Because I think it's terrific, terrific profession, particularly in the Houston area.
0: Great question. I had, I think, the unique experience of working with Marjorie Doyle, who was at DuPont, Conoco, ConocoPhillips, where I'd spent time before the compliance war. And I think when we were talking about earlier, none of us set out in law school to go become chief compliance officers. It was just not something 20 years ago, like they do today and teach various compliance export controls and the FCPA gets coverage as well in law school. So it was really kind of the old apprentice work where these groups were just starting and you're working with more experienced, tenured chief compliance officers that moved over as uh, assistant general counsel.
1: Right. When you say that, how did you fall into the compliance profession? And maybe fall in is the right word
0: to use. It is because next month will be the 20th anniversary of the sale of the Circle K stores that I worked on. So, (laughs) you know, I had an AGC come to me and couple of other guys. And we started at Conoco because of a department of commerce enforcement action of servers being exported unlawfully to Syria. Wow. We started an export compliance, economic sanctions, anti-boycott group. That was my entry into what became a field that I found my passion. I mean, I was lost between litigation and commercial transactions. I really enjoyed, I did some corporate investigations, as part of litigation, injuries, and deaths. But I really found my passion 20 years ago when I started in the compliance field for trade. And then, as you recall, the American Rice case with Kay and Murphy in 05, when that cert was denied by the Supreme Court, the DOJ enforcement machine really got going. And this Um, is in the FCPA area? In the FCPA, well, Yeah. Yeah. So Marjorie Doyle went over to Vetco. I went there, but I had no idea that that was ground zero between Vetco and Baker Hughes. But my second day on the job at Vetco, the GC came to me the second day and he goes, I need you to investigate a transshipment through Iran and I need you to go meet the monitor. Wow. In the the same day. It was a DOJ-placed law firm, big law firm out of DC and They were the monitor with Vetco. So another door opened. I mean, it was the FCPA world at the beginning of 06. That really catapulted my career. I moved over to Baker Hughes shortly thereafter, and I had the export control investigation because they had parallel enforcement actions going on, FCPA and export control. And so the company was finding religion quickly because you had commerce, you had DOJ, and and a lot of national attention focused on. And
1: when you first went over there, was Jay Martin there
0: at Baker Hughes? Yeah. Hill? I mean, he was there. And both Marjorie Doyle and Jay Martin were some of the first chief compliance officers by title that I ever knew. And I got to work with both of them. So it was at Baker Hughes for almost two years, and seven of us left to become chief compliance officers at other companies. Uh-huh. They were all due to other enforcement actions. Mine was another DOJ enforcement action at an aviation company that was through the antitrust division, not the criminal division of the DOJ, but nevertheless, it allowed for the establishment of a compliance program and a chief compliance officer at this global aviation company. You know, and I was there eight years. And I think that was a unique thing about my background was being able to work ground zero. Everyone talks about they've got FCPA experience, but not a lot of people were day one with Vetco and Baker Hughes. In the Baker Hughes piece, we really gained a lot of experience on the elements of what makes an effective compliance program back in the
1: day. The amazing thing is that, at least when I got to Houston, I saw some of the best compliance programs I've ever seen in my career. And I used to say, Bobby, that you probably heard me say this, but everybody came by dishonestly or honestly. I mean, they got in trouble, but they built incredible programs that I think had a huge impact on the compliance profession
0: across the country, not just
1: limited to Houston.
0: There's no doubt. We've talked about this many times over the years is the difference between taking preventative medicine and the difference between... When someone has the heart attack, they've survived the heart attack, meaning you've survived the initial shock and awe that DOJ puts on you and threatens to throw people in jail or three years of a monitor or what have you. Companies find enormous amounts of resources. After the enforcement action. Absolutely. The real challenge comes when you're trying to be persuasive and find resources that accompany who's not been through one enforcement action. Those are the moments. The premier, the programs, the standard that everyone wants to follow have come through the pain of enforcement. There's no doubt.
1: I mean, you've never seen a company that hasn't gone through an enforcement action and says, we're going to dedicate the same amount of resources that these companies under a monitor did. It's not going to happen because people don't allocate those resources unless they have to.
0: No. no, they still look, I've tried and I made it in the aviation to the credit and the leadership of the CEO of the aviation company where I work. We made compliance a competitive advantage.
1: And that you were early doing that.
0: You were Oh, that was going early. back in 08 and doing
1: it. Yeah, so, and I'm saying you were years ahead of your time.
0: By 2010, I was out there with the sales and business development folks We were in front of our major clients, Fortune 500 clients that are flying around the world in their corporate jets. We made compliance a competitive advantage by the program that we had built and the commitment of the resources we had built. And it's still going on today and being led by a friend of mine, and she's doing a great job continuing to carry that torch. But companies that have not been through enforcement, they're not... Fully committing the resources because they look at it more. We talked about this as a cost and not an investment, but it's hard to measure the return on that investment. Absolutely. But I always argue
1: that compliance has to have a positive message. And the positive message to me is if you have a culture of ethics and compliance, then you will perform better in the marketplace over a long term. I'm not saying you're going to make a profit. I'm going to say you're going to do better than a company that has no compliance concerns, doesn't pay any attention to it. And one of the things I want to ask you about is I see a trend nowadays where the workforce is changing into younger folks and they're demanding more sort of corporate responsibility. They're demanding more that a company has values and doesn't engage in discrimination, doesn't sexually harass people, doesn't pay bribes, stays within the law. And I think that that is pushing some of the companies nowadays to do more in this area.
0: Yeah. Kind of going back to a conversation we had in its Houston origin again. Yeah. I told you it's one of the most powerful single page slides I've ever seen. And if you can close your eyes and think about it, I kind of took you through this. The title of the slide was Culture Trump's Compliance. And it was the cover of Enron's Code of Conduct. And I'll talk
1: and about so, a twist of fate, you
0: know, or an irony. And that was 22 years ago where Enron collapsed and changed a lot of the landscape. And in fact, was some of the fuel to catapult compliance because of the SOX creation. Right. The compliance right. piece. Right. But again... I don't know who created the slide. I'm not smart enough to have done it myself. I wish I was. But it has made such an impact on me throughout my career. I talk about it. I've used it. But it is culture. And I equate culture to safety. You can't measure safety when everybody's going home in the same form that they came to work in. But when there's a death that occurs or there's a big plant explosion or a serious, significant injury, that's when your safety program is getting tested. And every day that goes by, when there's not a compliance issue, and you can certify that controls have passed, and the elements are there, and you have outside counsel come in and do an assessment of your program, you continuously improve, and each day goes by and you don't have an issue, well, there's another positive impact to the investment and the return on shareholder value, and more importantly, the company brand. Absolutely. The reputation.
1: Reputation. Yeah. You're exactly right. The brand. And I always say that's their most valuable and tangible asset. Let me ask you this, Bobby, and I get a lot of questions on this and you're in the trenches and I'd love to hear. I always am asked by clients. And I have conversations with compliance officers all the time about persuasion, persuasive. These are folks that want more resources, that want to do the right thing. How do you build a persuasive presentation or how do you convince people? Let's start first at leadership and then we can talk about people that you need to coordinate with. But how do you even start to persuade and what have you done through the years to try to persuade senior executives on the importance of investing in compliance.
0: One of the words, if you could describe me as persistent. I will definitely do you, that. Admittedly, I have a strong personality, but 20 years ago, it was fighting for a seat at the table. Right. Just to be there and hope that my presence will make people think about compliance. Because at the beginning 20 years ago in the oil and gas world, the chemical world, even business meetings will start with a safety share. And I'm like, how about we add a compliance moment to this too? Back then, again, to the credit of the CEO of the aviation company, you cannot withhold a paycheck, but you can withhold a bonus, for example. Well, how do you get people to do their training? Well, we're going to hold your bonus back until you get your training done. I had to go to him one time and say, you can't have your bonus. Your training's not done. <laughs> to this, he <CEO, laughs> a multi-billion dollar company. And it takes a little bit of intestinal fortitude to be able to stand up and say, I can't give you your bonus. And he was fine. He was great to his credit and a great leader. He was like, no, that's what we put in. We put in place and we support you because discretionary income could, but let me tell you, I use that. Is a learning moment for everybody, really? a training moment. moment and the teaching. But he was willing to kind of walk the walk and not just say it doesn't pertain to the C-suite. Exactly. That's a big deal. Oh, it was huge. And it really changed the dynamic of getting everyone to do their training. This is Compliance Week, the Society of Corporate Compliance and Ethics. This is kind of the yeah. designated Compliance Week. The timing's perfect. And so this is a week to celebrate compliance. Because we all have dents and chinks in our armor over the last 20 years, scars and battle stories. But it is fighting. I mean, I still fight for a seat at the table. I was in a business meeting today. I kind of pushed my way in and introduced myself to new guys. But if you're meek and timid or a true introvert, you're going to struggle being a good compliance officer. And many of them are very strong personalities, male and female, which I love. But it is, you've got to be persistent and you've got to be consistent as well.
1: Well, that's a good point. You've got to be consistent. You can't just change your view for one thing versus another. And you have to be consistent in your message. That's one issue that I hear a lot. Then the other is, for example, another part of the company, you need coordination and cooperation with them. Let's say HR, let's say procurement, let's say whatever part you want, security, whatever. And I continue to hear stories of people who face resistance when compliance says, look, I want to work with you. I want to do things. Here are some initiatives we could take. I'll help you. Let's do stuff together on our culture with HR. Let's do something together on procurement with third-party due diligence risk and risk management. I'm sure you've experienced that at times in your career. And early on, it was with legal. We had the legal compliance fight. But that seems to have been sort of resolved. But how do you then end up persuading your colleagues to join with you? How do you get them to say, this is a win-win for us, for us to work together?
0: Great question. I've been a strategic partner to the business units, the support units. I am not a gotcha compliant.
1: You're not the sheriff, I've yeah, which I is mean, the worst way to be presented.
0: Right. I want to look for solutions and I try to find every solution that I can legally to say yes, but there are moments that you have to stand up and say no, but when I do have and experience, those moments, that's when I have to be very clear in the message of why, because if you just say, no, you can't do it because it's Iran. No, you can't do it because it's Cuba. You're going to lose them because they're going to find a workaround. That's the one thing about human behavior. So it's really trying to be their strategic partner, finding ways to earn their trust in any relationship. And so I don't want them to ever feel like, oh, here comes Bobby. Nothing good happens when Bobby shows up because I want to be able to find solutions for them that are compliant and can help grow the business. Look, at the end of the day, if you're gonna be a business killer, you're not gonna have a job, the business, to grow and be prosperous, but do it in a compliant way. One of your colleagues, another alum
1: from Baker Hughes, Dan Chapman, he used the phrase with me, and I borrowed it liberally. He said, you look for win-win with the business. In other words, ways that you advance your mission And you make their job easier, or even your idea of being part of the sales team and showing them the financial benefit of it. That to me is a win win big time because they get the value of it.
0: Without a doubt, I talked to Dan this week, and a lot of us that are Baker Hughes alums still stay in touch with each other. We still bounce ideas off of each other. Yeah, Dan is a very, very talented and smart compliance lawyer. And learned a lot even working with him. So as simple as that expression is, win-win, this is not a zero-sum game. If you make it a zero-sum game, you will not be there long at that stop. And people with that personality type will eventually fizzle out in compliance. It's just not going to work. You can say no, even as an advocate and a business partner, but you've got to be clear on why you're saying no. Right. You've got to be able to explain the law, the impact, the risk.
1: But what about also saying, look, we can't do it that way, but let me think about another way that we could do it. Or maybe here's another alternative to think about. In other words, solve the problem with them as opposed to, I used to call it Dr. No. You don't want to be a Dr. No. Yeah.
0: That's yeah. exactly what I was saying was, we have to find ways for the business to grow. We've got to be sitting there at the table with them thinking of solutions. And so the more brain power you put it, problem solving and doing it in a compliant way, that's how you build trust with people. You don't just say no and walk away and say, come back with your next solution. This is something that if you build their trust, they will come to you on the front end of Or an issue. You don't want them coming in at a past stop when somebody's celebrating a sale to Cuba and (laughs) their sales director says, we need to go down and talk to Bobby because can't do it. But if you can prevent those moments the same way, if you can prevent trip and falls in the office or trip and falls at the plant or serious injuries that could also include death, those are those small wins that you have to celebrate.
1: Exactly. I mean, you couldn't have said it any better. Let me ask you a couple of things. Number one, I know you teach and have taught compliance, but I kind of want you to look into your crystal ball. Where do you see the profession going? And if you had to do it all over again and you started out in compliance today, Would you still be as passionate, you think, about the whole field? And where do you see it going?
0: Sure. There's some great certifications that are out there. I mean, I've gone through the Society of Corporate Compliance and Ethics certification. But I think you're seeing more law schools teach about having Mm -hmm. compliance courses, the FCPA, export controls, where a lot of us 20 years ago either we're working in other jobs that moved us towards this. I mean, the light bulb went on for me 20 years ago when I found trade compliance and then the FCPA. It's like I got yeah. it, finally. Yeah. But I think more people are learning about it on the front end, and I think we've both seen the enforcement machine hasn't stopped. And in fact, with today's geopolitical world, it's going to increase Technology has provided a lot of great benefits, but we also see where people want to do harm to other people. They are being more and more creative of how they export items out, how they transact business. And now we it, have
1: artificial intelligence and we're going down a road now where there's gonna be
0: it's abuses, a
1: Yeah. It's abuses of whatever new technology that business incorporates, it's gonna raise uh, risks.
0: Yeah. But the five years that I taught at at University of Houston, I certainly tried to open the minds of some of these supply chain and logistics students that, yes, go there wherever you're going to go and work, but know that trade compliance is an avenue that you can grow your career and do it at a very fast trajectory. So there are masters in compliance programs for the A lot of non-lawyers, there's some great educational opportunities out there. It's a profession that you don't have to be a licensed lawyer to go become. In fact, I am a compliance officer. I don't go around describing myself as, you know, I was a very unhappy lawyer until I found my passion in compliance. But that's something that I believe everyone that does this for a living found that moment Where they go, this is it.
1: Well, I also find the profession, unlike legal profession, is filled with optimistic people who are like yourself. They want to make the company better. They want to make the organization operate better. It's a positive message of beyond do the right thing, whatever your values and your mission is of the company. So I see everybody that I work with in this area almost to a much higher degree or more positive people in general versus lawyers tend to be cynical a ton.
0: You're right. I mean, two last points. I mean, I listened to one of your previous podcasts. You had a, a lady, it was a great discussion, but I think her title was Chief Evangelist Officer.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah.
0: And so I thought that was great because that's what we do when we're out there preaching the good news that compliance can be a good thing. Because at the end of the day, when the company does get in trouble, Compliance sets policy sets voluntary boundaries where the law sets mandatory boundaries. But when you get in trouble, that's at times where legal has to kind of come in and circle the wagons. And so, yes, lawyers are very much needed in this and corporate investigations and so forth. But it's a different skill set that gets developed and sharpened over time if you've got the right attitude and even aptitude for this work because it's a marathon. I mean, it is a very persuasive career field of showing people what the right thing will do. If you do the right thing, this is the fruit it will yield.
1: Very well said. Just to emphasize that one point you said, compliance skill set. You are subject matter experts in the area of compliance. Lawyers are not necessarily your experience is much different than a lawyer who then suddenly comes to the compliance. Yeah,
0: people that have worked for me, people I've worked with, typically in the compliance world have, like you mentioned, subject matter experts. I have mine in export controls, economic sanctions, FCPA antitrust. trust. When I'm a chief compliance officer in the role that I'm in, I'm a generalist in a lot of other ways. And I've got to yield. I mean, I had a CFO said, since when did you become an Indian VAT tax expert? I go, I'm not. I'm just smart enough to go hire one. (laughs) I mean, there, there are a lot of areas where I have to go out and hire people. And I think good leaders are people that are willing to hire people that are smarter than they are, whether you're outsourcing it. It's why I've hired you before, Mike.
1: I hear you, but I just think that the skill set for successful compliance folks, they have their own expertise in how to Mm -hmm. work within an organization, how to address policies, procedures, risk assessments. They know these are terms and these are subjects that they work in day in, day out. And you guys develop an expertise that is second to none. Nobody else can do that. And that's what I think has happened to the profession is that it's developed into an area where people, through experience and hopefully through more education, like you're saying, start to develop this as a career path early on, as opposed to 20, 25 years ago, where people just sort of rolled into it and fell in love with it. And I think it's going to happen, I already see it happening where I spoke at a class Recently, there are more people in law school who are taking compliance classes now. They want to go into that field. So the field, I think, is expanding, and I think it's terrific,
0: frankly. Today, I couldn't imagine doing anything else.
1: Exactly. Well, Bobby, thanks for your perspective. Really interesting, and I appreciate your perspective. If people do want to get in touch with you, I'm going to have them first email me, and then I'll connect. Well,
0: I'm happy to talk again. to anybody. I mean, whether it's. I didn't uh, want to give
1: out your personal email oh, okay. or phone yet, yeah, you know, whatever. Yeah,
0: so. no, it's all good. I mean, I'm happy to talk to anybody. I've had some great mentors in my life and great friends like yourself that have shared their knowledge and experience. So anything I can do to get back, I'm happy to do it. So don't oh, hesitate. Really and thanks again for having me. This has been a great honor and pleasure. Thanks, Bobby.
1: If you enjoyed this episode, the best way to support the show is by subscribing on your favorite listening platform. To learn more and connect with Michael Volkov, go to volkovlaw.com.